with Mix there, right by your side. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by Matthew Roberts from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. Hello. Thanks for having me, James. Sex workers were not happy that National Australia Bank marched at last Sunday's Pride March. Why not? Because the bank, National Australia Bank, has a long-term policy of being anti-sex industry, banning all brothels and escort agencies, even if those businesses operate lawfully. So are all banks like that or just NAB? It's hard to say. NAB's really the main one that's been open about its um, attitude of discrimination. We do hear other banks also ban the sex industry, but they're just less brazen about it. It's interesting here. I've got some uh, information off the NAB website. It says NAB does provide banking services to sex workers as individuals. There's no plan to change this policy, but does say NAB's high-risk ESG sectors and sensitive areas list prohibits lending or providing banking services to brothels and escort agencies due to the complexities of laws, licensing and oversight regimes across states and territories. Now, we've got decriminalisation in Victoria. We certainly do, and we fought for five years to achieve that, which is a great outcome. So why is that part of NAB's policy still active then, considering that decriminalisation? It's a great question, James. It seems that society and parliaments are ahead of the banks. We're all, you know, getting used to sex workers being a legitimate form of work. The banks are decades behind. On this issue, they're decades behind. And it sounds like it because they go on to say this is a risk-based decision made to ensure NAB meets legislative requirements as NAB has determined a higher likelihood of illegal activity, including money laundering and human rights abuse. And so whenever someone who's interested in human rights um, issues, as your listeners are, hears something like that, we all need to have the same response, which is to ask for details and to scrutinise those claims. But it does seem based in a previous decade, it does seem very 1980s focused, you know, just that whole language. You said that the community had moved forward on sex work, and indeed it has. doesn't sound like NAB has in that regard anyway. Certainly not. And there's no evidence to, to support the claims that NAB's making, making about um, human rights abuses or money laundering in the sex industry. If you go to the um, Austrac's website, Austrac is the crime-fighting agency that fights money laundering. Sex work isn't even mentioned on the Austrac website as a high-risk industry. So all of that, to me, sounds like a rather weak excuse to take a moral high ground to ban the sex industry, there is no evidence to support any of NAB's claims. You are the policy officer for Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. You uh, got a reaction from sex workers when NAB marched at the Pride March. Tell us about that. They weren't happy. They were not happy, and I wasn't happy either. I was I was present in the audience uh, of the march, and I saw NAB um, marching down with the other many corporate floats, and the question that we asked on, on Twitter, and of course, a Twitter poll is not a scientific poll. We all know that, right? Um, we asked that um, the bank bans lawfully operating sex industry businesses, but it was allowed a presence at Midsummer Pride March. Do you want Midsummer to ban the bank from future Pride marches? Over 90% of respondents said yes. And I myself and Sex Work Law Reform Victoria are also calling on Midsummer to ban the bank 
from future marches until they change their policies to be sex industry inclusive. Who are the good banks for sex workers? I would be dishonest if I named a single one because we we can't really name a single bank that has actually openly said that we welcome sex workers. There are some where we haven't got a lot of complaints from from um, from sex workers, but none have actually openly said this is not an issue for us. We'll we'll assess you on your individual merits. So I cannot name a single bank that is good for sex workers, James. So it sounds like sex workers would not be happy with other banks marching at Pride March. It's not just NAB, it's any bank really that marched would 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 raise concerns potentially. Not necessarily. I mean, NAB is, with NAB, NAB is, is a particularly serious case because they're so explicit and open about their policy of discrimination. So I think NAB is a very clear-cut case. If it was another bank that didn't have such an open policy, I don't think we would have such a concern. It's really NAB is the worst of a pretty bad lot. So the sex industry is big, it's, um, and some brothels are big. They're, they're not little businesses. Uh, where do they go if NAB won't take their banking business? Yeah, so um, it's a great question. And some, some businesses will, you know, um, use a different industry, present a different industry. They might go to some other banks um, that do accept them, you know, quietly. Uh, some for some um, businesses have to actually go cash only, go back to the olden days and just take cash uh, for periods of time or even long periods of time. So there's a range of responses. Uh, it's disruptive to the to the business that you talk about, James, but it's also quite stigmatising because it sends a message to the community that this is not a legitimate industry or even a lawful industry, and it is. So tell us some of the anecdotes about individual sex workers, those, you know, small business operators uh, that have been discriminated against by NAB. Can you share any anecdotes? Yes, so there was um, a female sex worker on social media who who made reports that her accounts had been closed by NAB a few years ago. Um, I don't know where she went with that particular claim. What I can say is that there's a published decision um, from the financial regulator confirming that NAB did suddenly close the accounts of an escort agency owner in Melbourne, and um, that decision was not reversed. The regulator found, James, that it was um, not a problem because of the manner in which the discrimination was handed down. So what's sex work law reform Victoria doing in this area? You're not alone. I mean, the Eros Foundation is the industry organisation for the sex industries, you know, brothels, sex shops. Uh, you're not alone. Uh, tell us about your, your response to get the banks to change their ways. Yes, well, um, we're doing a lot of work in this space. So we're engaging in consultations and submissions with Treasury, the government, state governments, the federal government, Track the financial regulator. Uh, we're also talking to the federal government and the relevant ministers about what they can do because we're reaching a point now, James, where voluntary, the it, relying on the banks to voluntarily do the right thing is not working. They're not responding to even new laws. I mean, NAB's conduct, James, may actually be unlawful. In Victoria, we have anti-discrimination laws now already applying that say that it is unlawful to discriminate against somebody on the basis of their occupation. And so it's quite possible 
that NAB's policy may actually be unlawful. And so what we're looking at doing is enforcing those laws and contacting the federal government to say we actually may need to legislate at the federal level new laws to um, regulate the way that financial service providers behave so that they are addressing the financial discrimination issue, also known as debanking. Because banking really is the domain of the federal government, isn't it? Uh, Federal Labor is known to be much more conservative than most of its state counterparts. Uh, How are they reacting to to the industry saying, look, enough is enough? Uh, When it comes to the sex industry, banks need to lift their game. What are you going to do about it, Elbow? Yeah, I mean, so far the federal government has been sort of tied up in a number of inquiries uh, over the last sort of three, three or four years. Um, and they're sort of focusing on getting those out of the way. So I guess we'll be waiting once those have fully concluded. Then we'll be reaching out and saying, enough enough paperwork shuffling, enough inquiries, enough talking, what's actually going to be done to force the banks? Because unless we have enforcement power, unless the government has enforcement powers to actually create force this change, nothing is going to change um, if the banks are able to do things voluntarily. That it's, is clear. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when new governments get in, they do inquiries, they take time to find their feet, they do consultations. But eventually it gets to a point where it's like, you know, you can't kick the, the can down the road anymore. You've been in office for a while. Um, what are you going to do? So when's enough's enough, do you think, in this area? When is the industry going to say, I'm sorry, we need action? How long is it going to take? Look, I think, I think this year is going to be the year that we're going to start to, to speak up and say we have been waiting long enough. We've got these new anti-discrimination laws in Victoria. We've had these multiple inquiries about debanking uh, and from Treasury, and it's time that something is actually done. Um, the government's attitude seems to be, well, we'll just encourage them to do the right thing, and then that should be enough. We need actual enforcement powers. I want to go back to to Pride March. Uh, How well represented were sex workers at the Pride March? Well, before I answer that question, I just want to say, once again, I was at Pride March and it was a really great event. It was loud, colourful, as it always should be. And um, I was, you know, felt quite emotional being there, which was fantastic. On the downside, James, this year was a low point for sex workers at Pride March with no sex worker groups represented. And that is really just disappointing in the year that decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria is about to be completed. It's more important than ever that sex workers are represented and we just did not see that representation this year. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, the last 12 months, last 18 months, possibly even the last two years has been a time when LGBTIQ incorporate, if you like, the mainstream LGBTIQ community has acknowledged that, you know, uh, sex workers are often queer. You know, it's it's been reported that, you know, perhaps 60% of sex workers are queer. There's been an acknowledgement that sex workers are, are part of our community. That must have really felt like a kick in the gut at Pride March when you weren't actually represented. Well, it was, it was disappointing. And... Um because I'm, I'm really passionate about uh, queer sex workers getting out there, having a voice, being, being seen. Sex workers have always been fighting for LGBTIQ rights from the very beginning because we recognise those similarities in the struggles that we face. And um, so there's a lot of overlap there with the criminalisation of our workforce and our sexualities. The two groups that um, would have, it would have been good to see uh, both receive funding now from the Victorian government, and they are RED 
and Vixen. Both of those groups receive hundreds of thousands of dollars in state government funding. And so I, th- I would really like next year both of those groups to use their, their, their resources to make a really strong, proud and colourful presence next year. Now, just playing devil's advocate in defence of midsummer, they would turn around, they'd say, well, everyone's welcome. Look, we had Greyhound Racing Victoria, we had NAB, we had the police, you know, we had Crown Casino, we even had the Liberal Party. It's a broad church, everyone's welcome. Vixen and Red, they might say, didn't actually, you know, apply to, you know, march in the parade. So really, it's not our fault, it's the onus is on them. Well, so look, I mean... That certainly could be the argument. And I don't have any reason to believe that they weren't um, excluded explicitly. Um, So what we want is that the two funded groups here in Victoria, Vixen and Red, to prioritise having a banner under the sex worker banner at Pride next year. Both of those groups have resources and I think that they should prioritise having a presence at Pride in the future. And that, of course, involves applying you know, getting all your uh, clothes ready and having like a fun time. So how does it impact? How do you think it would impact on sex workers if they were at Pride March and they saw their community represented marching, you know, marching proud with a banner? Would that have much of an impact? Um, I think it does have a, have an impact. I mean, on a personal level, when I, in the past, when I've seen the sex worker groups there, I'm really, it just, it's really moving and it, it's really uplifting to see our community getting a visible presence when a lot of people don't want us to be visible or speaking out. And so I think on a very fundamental level, it it sends a strong signal to the sex worker community when they see our representatives up there fighting the good fight. Big year for sex workers here in Victoria. That second tract of, uh, of decriminalisation kicks in in December. Parliament has began to sit. Uh, that's, all, that's all started. So we're in, a, we're in a new parliamentary year now. How are you feeling? Relieved that the same government that delivered sex work decriminalisation was returned to power. So I think we're fairly safe for four years, assuming that Labor will implement the reforms and not reverse them. And so now it's just a matter of um, making sure that that rollout is smooth and that the industry and government are informed about the new laws and what they mean. So I'm kind of relieved and happy and looking forward to a much brighter future. I mean, James, I'll just give you one example. I got a call from a sex worker um, just last week who had been assaulted at work. And she said, oh, look, you know, for the first time, I'm actually thinking of going to the police. I feel safe to actually report this. Everything's changed for me. And that's what we're talking about here is we're talking about real people having the confidence to engage with the system and access justice. And you must be hearing that a lot, you know, not just in relation to issues like that, but across the board from sex workers, uh, that legitimacy must have a huge impact on mental health, for example. Most definitely. I mean, you can talk about concrete things like calling the police but on a fundamental level in terms of how we feel and just just the anxiety um, and the mental health issues all of that improves so there's a multitude of benefits when you decriminalize sex work i feel much more confident and 
um, secure in my own personal life as a result of these changes. I know it's going to take time and, you know, you have law reform and, you know, change and behavioural change and feelings don't necessarily change overnight. But are you finding that more sex workers are starting to be out as sex workers in perhaps areas of their lives where they weren't before? I think it's too early to, to say that at the moment. And I also think, James, that cultural and attitudinal change within the sex worker community and beyond is a long process that requires leadership from our government, but also from our sex worker community. What I can say, James, is that I myself really only started engaging on your program last year when the bill passed. So it has given me the confidence to speak out in the media, including on your show, as a direct result of that bill. Matthew Roberts, always great to see you and chat with you at 3CR. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, James. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Florence and the Machine. At 17, I started to starve myself. I thought that love was a kind of emptiness. And at least I understood then the hunger I felt And I didn't have to call it loneliness We all have a hunger
Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter.
Alicia Keys there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I am honoured to have Councillor James Conlon from Mary Beck Council in the studio. James, welcome to 3CR. First time here. Yes, thanks Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, you resigned this week from the Greens in solidarity with Senator Lydia Thorpe, who left the party uh, to sit as an independent. Why did you leave the Greens in solidarity with her? Um, yeah, so I'm a big supporter of Lydia Thorpe and what all the stuff that she's um, been doing and advocating for First Nations sovereignty and justice for a very long time um, and was just really... Um, pleased to see someone like her who's a, you know, a staunch black activist joining a party like the Greens, which you know doesn't have a lot of people particularly you know, from her sort of political activist background in our ranks. So it was just really great to have someone like that and she's been doing so much great work. So I was, you know, I was seeing over time the kind of uh, struggle she was having within the party and you know, it was starting to look like that she was having a difficult time, but it was very sudden and surprising, I guess, for her to resign on that particular day. Um, and for me, that the fact that the party can't really deal with someone like that, like her, in our ranks, showed to me that it's no longer the political party for me. So you made that decision quite quickly. Some would say you might have agonised over it. It took guts. But it doesn't sound like it was a tough decision for you. It sounds like you were adamant it was the right thing to do. Absolutely. Like I've actually had no regrets about it afterwards. It feels like the right decision. Uh, obviously, I've had you know my struggles and um, issues with the party for some time. Like, uh, well, not obviously, but everyone. It's a large organisation, um, full of lots of different voices. I had had some concerns and you know my some struggles with the political party, but um, for th- for me, this issue was um, it was something I couldn't really ignore. And something that I wanted to take a big stand on, for as big a stand as I can take. Um, and for me, that was quitting the party. Um, so it was, in some ways, it was uh, a fairly quick decision. Um, you know, I obviously thought about it and considered it and all of the pros and cons, but I did, it was something that I wanted to definitely take a stand on. And so that's what I did. I mean, in some ways, it's not surprising. I mean, the Greens are known for being, you know, very kind of, you know, adamant about principles in politics and being above the fray and taking a firm stance on human rights issues. So I guess it's not surprising that a councillor from a left-wing municipality like Meribach would actually go down that path. Um, But how have people in the Greens reacted? How have your fellow councillors, Greens councillors, reacted? Um, So, I I, I mean... In, overwhelmingly, the, I've had a pretty a, a very good response. So I have had, um, you know, a message from Lydia herself um, expressing a lot of gratitude and thanks, which is a really lovely message to hear. Um, and, and you know, that did help validate my decision in some way to hear ex- from the senator herself that that was a really um, she really supported and um, thanked me for that. Um, but then also, you know, I did see Celeste Little posted publicly on, on my um, my long sort of statement um, saying that she endorsed those comments. Um, and I've also had First Nations uh, members within the party reach out to me personally after that, um, thanking me for um, for taking a stand and um, for, I, I, you know, that for laying out the issue as I saw it. And I took a lot of time um, and thought about that statement. And so... A lot of people also um, were grateful for how I kind of laid out the issue as I saw it. So you didn't consult Lydia before you made the decision? It was kind of like something that you made and then how did she respond again? Did she call you or, or tell us about that? Yeah, no, I didn't I didn't consult Lydia beforehand, no, but um, I did receive a message afterwards, a text message from her afterwards. So, um, yeah, that was the 
the extent of it um in terms of the yeah like the consultation for me was it wasn't i didn't consult widely in the party it was a personal decision that i wanted to make um for me i wanted to um, make sure that my message was clear i wanted to have my statement out there um and i wanted to make sure that that stood um for itself and it was able to be yeah read and understand for itself and not you know twisted or whatever so i didn't sort of you know brief the media or anything beforehand i just wanted to go out on my own terms um and to have my position out there black and white and you did that on Twitter. You were very kind of articulate, very clear about what your reasoning was. And your own boss on the issue as well, as you say, you kind of, you know, didn't brief the media beforehand. You just did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, pretty much the same statement on both Twitter and um, Facebook. And yeah, and then, you know, the media have like talked, you know, afterwards have talked to me about it. But um, I've tried to just not give extended interviews. I just wanted the the statement to read for itself so it can't be twisted because it is a complicated issue. Like, so what Lydia is talking about um, is like Lydia and the, the Black Greens in the, in the Greens have gone um, through a long and arduous process in changing. So the, the first point is that the Greens' current policy on um, treaty and voice is that um, it goes truth, treaty, voice in that order. That's inverted commas of the policy. So th- that's the the key thing is that Lydia has actually been um, championing the party's own policy platform. But the re- but the the way that the it's playing out in the media is that she's in opposition to the party when actually the party leadership haven't explained or gone through a process to um, change the existing policy. Like that's the kind of problem for me is that there isn't any kind of democratic um, engagement with the members from the leadership about how we're going to deal with this um, political difficulty in front of us at the federal level where you've got voice being um, uh, offered as the first uh, thing on the table which is indirect contravention to the party's own policy position. So I'm not saying again that the party should necessarily, you know, in my view, oppose voice, but there does need to be some kind of significant internal democratic discussion within the party about how to reconcile the fact that the federal leadership uh, want, have decided to vote against the party's own policy, explicit policy. So it's about policy process, and it sounds like there's a gulf between the administrative part of the party and its policy yeah. and the parliamentary party and its policy. There seems to be a schism. Yeah, I th- it's, it's a broader issue about how much um, power elected representatives have in the Greens. Elected representatives have no real um, accountability um, to the members. There's no formal real, there's not really any formal structures within the party um, for the members to hold the elected representative to account. So there are schisms that occur once you get into power that you are able, you know, and you do have to compromise sometimes. But I, my argument is there should be much stronger um, engagement and accountability uh, between the members and the elected reps to make sure the elected reps are actually representing the policies of the party. So and that's sort of one kind of, I guess, broader democratic issue with the party. But I guess the other thing is also the treatment of Lydia Thorpe as a, you know, a very outspoken, staunch black activist and how the, I guess, almost culturally within the Greens, the party wasn't really able to it was very uncomfortable with um, that kind of activism, someone who had an un- a way of communicating her ideas in a very unfiltered um, way that was, you know, in my view, st- spoke s- truth to power right in the face. Um, and that makes that does make people uncomfortable because she's bringing up very big issues like colonisation and all those sorts of issues. Um, but, yeah, the part, instead of uh, grappling and understanding what Lydia and... Uh, she was what Lydia was saying, as well as the First Nations uh, 
um, group in the in the Greens, instead of grappling with these ideas, that it was more convenient to sort of, you know, essentially silence and um, exclude her from the the party and all of the the way that the decisions were being made and how she was isolated in the party. So when you say the party, are you talking about some of the membership, some of the parliamentary federal party, some of the state parliamentary party? Like when you say the party, mm. um, who are you talking about in particular? Um, I guess it is the, yeah, I guess that's a complicated question. I think it's it's the kind of, it is the elected representatives. It's kind of the uh, the internal bodies within the party. It's uh, it's kind of members or sort of groupings of members. Sorry, I don't, it's a pretty broad question, but um, I think the problem was what, what I think should have happened was that um, Lydia should have been supported by all the elected representatives and the kind of whole the whole party um, machine to um, to champion what she the, what she was talking about, or at least to grapple with the complexity of um, the issue of tro- voice and treaty. Um, but instead of doing that, um, it was very difficult for the party to grapple with the kind of political realities of where the f- federal representatives were at. Um, and so what happened was she got, um, I think I think the mem- some of the members and some of the p- party bodies were emboldened by the broader lack of support that she was receiving. Um, and so that over time there was more there were some more and more groups that were kind of organizing around her and sort of isolating her from um, you know, isolating her and making her do all of this work externally on her own. I think she it's it's broad because it's the greens are such a big, you know, sort of they're part of a social movement, but um I think the 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 party should have been able to um support her in um in championing what she was talking about or at least understanding what she was talking about and trying to find a way a path forward. How divided are the greens at the moment? Um I think I don't know. I think there is there is definitely well, I mean, we've seen that the First Nations um network have put out a strongly worded statement I think in the last few days um you know, continuing their position that um the party policy platform does say truth treaty voice and that there has been some criticism of the um federal leadership about um, the way that they've gone about uh, deciding on um, prioritising voice. So I know that there are First Nations um, members who've, who've, well, the ones who have spoken to me, I think there is um, some division there, um, but I don't, I don't know exactly the numbers on, who, you know, who supports um, voice and, uh, and treaty in that particular, in the, according to that particular question. I think there's been some polling um, out there by, um, I, think, I think it was one of the media outlets, but, yeah, in terms, I think this is my point. The, the party should be doing this work and doing its own polling and its own voting and asking what the party wants. There should be more use of democratic processes and structures for a supposedly grassroots political party to be asking the members what do we do and engaging those processes so that we can have an, an outcome that probably involves some kind of compromise but also involves the members along the way and especially the First Nations um, advisory groups and, the, and members who need to be their voices need to be elevated and listened to it on this because they have joined the greens um to who fight for first nations sovereignty 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the criticisms the Greens have had of political parties is that they uh, get into power or they, you know, stick around for a while. They get quite a few MPs in Parliament and there's a schism that develops between the membership and the parliamentary party over democratic processes within the party. That sounds like that's happening in the Greens now. Yeah, and I think it's an inevitable tension for any kind of um, electoral for electoral politics and political parties in the system, there's always going to be that difficulty in working within the system um, when you get into power and then also um, remaining um, true to the values of the party that you represent. So that so I don't think that I don't think there's necessarily a way to fully reconcile those um, conflicts or differences, but I think um, uh, democratic processes to ensure that the elected reps are actually accountable and upholding the values of the members and the party need to be um, better in place so that you can ensure that the schism isn't too big. How has this hurt Adam Bant's leadership? I mean, presumably if there's issues around you know democratic processes within the party, surely he has some accountability for that. I mean, I, I'm, I don't really want to sort of criticise individual um, members of the party or anything. I'm, I guess I am talking more broadly about the, the party. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that, you know, Lydia, Lydia Thorpe herself did um, thank Adam Bant and the deputy leader, Maureen Faruqi, in her um, leaving speech to acknowledge that they have done, it does sound like they have done their absolute best to try to... Um, you know, help Lydia through this process. I'm talking more about the whole sort of party structure, which I know is very broad, but um, that's, yeah, I guess that's the reality of why I left. It wasn't because of one or two individuals. It was more about how this party was working and not working to support a really important cause that is really important to me, which is First Nations justice and sovereignty. Um, and that it, the fact that it wasn't able to um, support a person who has grown up in this movement, in the treaty movement, she is someone who has, um, yeah, like I'm sure she can speak to this, but I know that she's got a very long um, and very active, um, you know, involvement in grassroots um, political activism in lots of different ways. And, yeah, and it's also, I guess, being a member of the the queer community, um, there is a solidarity, some, you know, some solidarity there. Like, um, you know, we both... Uh, our community has an experience and a historical and ongoing experience of police violence and oppression. Um, it's obviously different for First Nations people, um, but there is a solidarity there. And, you know, I've marched, you know, alongside um, Lydia Thorpe at, uh, at, at Pride, and I know she's sp- spoken very um, loudly and proudly for um, trans and gender diverse people within the party. Um, so she's a solid ally. Um, and there is kind of merit and a need for um, collective... Uh, allyship amongst all of these different us, you know, different minorities, because obviously we're stronger together. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the connection, I guess, between for what I see is the connection between the queer community and, you know, um, this particular issue. Do you think other queer elected officials within the Greens will follow suit and lead as well <laughs> over this issue, considering all that and the link with queer identity and politics and emergence and and solidarity? Um, not that I know of. Um, I don't know. Like, if they do, that's that's good for them. But, you know, I I'd also, yeah, I also understand that people in the queer community have different views on lots of things. And, you know, like we saw at um, uh, Midsummer at the Pride March the other week, there was, you know, there are still differences of opinion on lots of things, especially the presence of police, police, police at Pride. Um, and so, you know, there was the, um, the, 
a group of people who oppose police in the march, which I definitely support that to get cops out of pride. I think the idea of marching alongside your oppressor is a weird idea for me. Um, I know not everyone holds that view, but like, yeah, there's different views amongst the queer community. And I think these are all types of issues that it's good for us to be discussing them internally. And then, you know, I think like having that uh, No Cops at Pride campaign is good because it's forcing a discussion amongst us as queers about how do we feel about um, having this institution which has an ongoing um, bad, in my view, a problematic relationship with our community. We are an over-policed community. Um, yeah, that's a good discussion to have. And it's one that I support in terms of No Cops at Pride. And you represent uh, the southern part of Marybeck Council. Uh, lots of queer people, lots of lots of people yeah. uh, support those views that you've just covered. Uh, do you think this is going to help your electoral chances uh, sitting as an independent on such a principled stance? Uh, look, I mean, I'm no probably sounds cliche, but I I, I I haven't really thought about it like that. I I don't. This is an issue. I just it's a very yeah. It was a personal issue, a personal. Um, stance that I wanted to take uh, like you know I suppose any politician would say that that they haven't thought about it in terms of their electoral pros- prospects but you know I I, but I haven't it genuinely it, you know <laughs> yeah. it does sound like you haven't it sounds like you made yeah. a really kind of you know guttural principled decision based on your queer identity and your experiences and how you think the Greens party should be mm. um and certainly, you know, you're in tune with its grassroots origins. It doesn't sound like you've made that calculated political decision at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope not. Like, because people see through that anyway. Like, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not interested in that. Like, I, my path to politics has been um, sort of, you know, I guess kind of this line, like following what I believe in and sort of standing up for what I believe in, and that ha- happened to be a way that I, you know, I think I got in. Maybe some people saw that. Um, so yeah, I. I you know, I, I want to keep doing that. And I think, you know, if you start to think like that, like a politician and only thinking what's you know, electorally going to be successful for you, then people see through that and like, and I don't know, who cares? Who wants people like that representing them? I want to be, I want to do what I stand up for what I believe in. And um, yeah, and hopefully that resonates with people. And if not, well, that doesn't. <laughs> But it sounds like, you know, you're aware that this is probably quite popular with some of your constituents. I mean, it sounds like, you know, people that you know personally, not just through the party, but through your community links as a councillor have said good on you. Yeah, but I definitely, but I think it is polarising. I think there is, um, you know, there is a lot of people who uh, support, you know, have supported voice. And again, I'm not against voice, but I think that... um, that there are people, this, I think this will be, some people, yeah, will be uncomfortable with it. They won't, they're still grappling and thinking through how they think about voice. And I think um, the work of Lydia and other First Nations grassroots activists through the um, the Invasion Day protests have sort of been raising these issues. And there are a lot of people in the community who probably were just like, oh yeah, voice, that seems like a good idea. But then, you know, through this kind of grassroots movement are going, well, hang on, what about treaty? Where does treaty fit into this? Um, so I think, oh, yeah, I don't think there. I think there are definitely people in in my community that will probably be happy with uh, you know, the stance that I took. But I also think that, yeah, there might be people who just aren't as well, and that's okay. But at least it's forcing a conversation. So, what's the first council meeting going to be like with you seeing as an independent? Like, <laughs> what kind of vibe are you expecting from your former colleagues, your uh, current colleagues, but you're an yeah. independent and they're in the Greens? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm not interested in sort of 
picking unnecessary political fights. Like obviously there's still a lot of overlap between myself and my um, former Greens colleagues because I was in the Greens. So I know that, you know, there's lots of overlap there. Um, But I guess in terms of some of the issues that I'll be um, focusing on will be issues like uh, deprivatisation. So uh, making sure that we retain council goods and services in um, public ownership. Um, That's an issue I do um, care very strongly for. And there's a lot of pressures to privatise because of um, lots of um, things going on at the council level. Um, And I think the other thing is, I know this, it sounds local and small, but it's important, is swimming pools. Like um, outdoor swimming pools are like a cultural institution, um, but they are in danger of being shut down in a lot of kind of cash-strapped councils. So um, I don't know where the Marybeck Greens sit on this particular issue, but um, I hope that they're not in favour of shutting any of them down. Sounds like you're feeling a bit unshackled. You know, you don't have to caucus now. You can be your own boss and you don't necessarily have to toe the party line and uh, go along with policies you don't 100% agree with. Yeah, def- definitely there are. I, I mean, you know, like a political party is comes with pros and cons. There are lots of good things, but there are, you know, there are obviously constraints like any organisation really. But, I mean, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, yeah, in some ways I feel, yeah, a bit less constrained by, you know, certain um, lines or party positions that you sort of need to take or things that are kind of harder to take on or issues that are harder to take on. But, um, yeah, but in general, um, yeah, there are certain things that I feel like I will be able to speak a bit strong, more strongly on um, and those are two of the sort of bigger level things that are at a, la- at a local level that um, I'll be championing. It sounds like you're going to enjoy being more outspoken. Yes, I think so. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's a good way to say it. Um, I like to speak my mind. Otherwise, what's the point in being in a position where you're like sort of there to speak your mind? Like, <laughs> that's why I sort of did it. Did you Do you think that you could have, in fact, made this decision to leave the Greens without the division over the voice and democratic processes in relation to it? Do you think that this was possibly something that was in the wind anyway and this was kind of like the catalyst, the straw that broke the camel's back? Um, yeah, I think there was... I've definitely had those like similar experiences. So I guess the, the, the issue that I guess I chose to walk out on was kind of... Uh, I was ex- I had experienced smaller scale um, the sim- the same issue at a smaller scale in in a local council context or local sort of political context. So it was kind of it's it's still it was an issue that was kind of the same issue, but um, yeah, does that make sense? Like it was yeah it it was yeah. Will you have a phone conversation or a Zoom conversation with Lydia Thorpe? I'm surprised she just messaged you. I thought maybe she would have picked up the phone. I mean, it's such a big thing that you did, leaving the Greeds. Are you surprised that she hasn't called? Are there any plans to have a chat? Oh, I mean, I don't really know Lydia personally that well. So, um, I, you know, I, I think she might be pretty preoccupied and, I don't know, doing something else and keeping um, having some kind of time for herself. I, look, I don't know. That's I don't know what what Lydia's up to but yeah um, I'm just happy that that I got some um, yeah some recognition from her that and that tells me that it was the right decision yeah 
well, certainly a gutsy decision. It's a principled decision. Uh, it's a controversial decision, but it sounds like it's empowered you to be your own boss and to um, be a bit more kind of outspoken on policy issues. James Conlon, an independent councillor now with Mary Beck Council here in Melbourne. Thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. And here's Baba. Soul on fire, thrilling thoughts for posterity. 
Lucifer running up to Bergatar with his towel between his legs. I'm gonna teach him a lesson. He ain't ever gonna forget. All the vultures and crows are fixing up some tombstones. They won't be chewing the meat off my hands. There's a high wind blowing. CR will be broadcasting live from the Pride Street Party here in Melbourne in Smith Street on Sunday. Uh, this Sunday between 12 and uh, and 4pm. So check that out. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. And yeah, we will catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>